Good evening, and welcome to Colorado Decides, the joint production of Colorado Public Television, CBS4, and KOA News Radio. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti, and joining me is political analyst Eric Sonderman. Tonight, we continue our series of debates, turning our gaze to the congressional races. Tonight, we look at Congressional District 4, spanning across eastern Colorado, including Greeley, Lamar, and Castle Rock. Joining us for the next 30 minutes are Republican incumbent Ken Buck and Democratic challenger Bob C. We have limited time, so let's get right to it. Eric, would you like to start us off? I would, indeed. Thank you both for being here and uh, try to have a, a lively and informative debate. Let me start with a question to each of you. I'll start with uh, Ken as the incumbent here. You've been there two years. How has it been more gratifying than you might have expected, and how has it been more frustrating than you might have expected? Yeah, I, I think it's a great honor, Eric, to, to be in, in the U.S. Congress. Uh, it is disappointing in the sense that we aren't dealing with a lot of big issues that I think we need to deal with. We have a, a huge debt. Uh, we continue to spend beyond our means. We have uh, some other uh, problems that we need to fix. Uh, we have uh, a president that is uh, generally unwilling to work with Congress and, and a Congress that is trying to assert its Article I authority. And so uh, that has been the biggest frustration uh, for me. And, and yet, at the same time, uh, I get a lot of feedback from constituents, and, and I'm working on specific bills to help constituents. And it's gratifying to see some of the smaller pieces of legislation work their way through that have practical impacts on, on our uh, on the fourth congressional district and to Bob I applaud you for running any race needs competition the national experts and the local experts don't regard this as a highly competitive race as you know but uh, this is your opportunity tell us why you're in this race and uh, what you hope to achieve I knew what I was getting into when I took this race you know it's an R12 district heavily Republican however this is not my grandfather's Republican Party and the people of Eastern Colorado have needs that simply are not being met. Uh, I feel like I'm running to give a voice to those needs. Uh, the current Congress told us jobs, jobs, jobs. That has not happened. There are a lot of issues, environmental issues, health issues, uh, taxation issues that are not being addressed, immigration issues. And before I continue, I'd like to say thank you for having me here today. Well, uh, A, you're very welcome, and B, let's get right into some national stuff. I'm not going to ask you if either one of you want to endorse your, the current presidential candidate in either one of your parties, but I will ask you, what is a key issue that you disagree with with your party's presidential candidate, or nominee, rather? Uh, Bob, we'll start with you. I don't know if there's a specific issue necessarily, uh, more of a philosophical base. The problem with the Democratic Party is it tends to be very top-down we would do well to listen to a grassroots movement. We would do well to listen to the electorate and stop directing from the top. Uh, ideas, historically, the ideas that have lasted have been those that have come from the bottom and, and filtered up. And the democratic tendency to micromanage, the democratic tendency to uh, set policy in a one-size-fits-all manner is something that I have a philosophical difference with. I've, I have problems with that as a, as a Democrat and as a voter. Um, so it's not so much a particular issue, it's just an overall prevailing thought. Okay. Ken, what's a key issue that you disagree with with your presidential nominee? 
And, and I am going to uh, approach this the same way Bob did. Um, uh, there isn't a specific issue that, that comes to mind right now, although I'm sure there are some. Uh, I think it's a, a, an issue of tone more than anything else. When, when we talk about immigration, uh, the system needs to be fixed, and, and uh, we all have ideas on, on how we can fix that. Uh, but what you want to make sure that you respect other human beings in the, in the process. When we talk about uh, refugees, uh, particularly Muslim refugees, we have a, a, a large not a large, but a significant Muslim population in Greeley. I've worked very closely with them as district attorney. A lot of really good people uh, that, that feel like they won the lottery when they got a ticket to come to America. We have to respect uh, Muslim refugees and be able to separate out those that have some ill intent uh, towards our country from those that, that want to come here and improve their lives. Uh, when it comes to trade, uh, we, have, we have lost uh, in some trade deals, uh, and we have to make sure that we understand how to negotiate a trade deal and, and how to make it best for all Americans. Uh, that doesn't mean that you throw trade off the table. It means that you negotiate better trade deals. So um, my, uh, my challenge to uh, Donald Trump is really uh, to make his tone understandable to so many Americans, and, and I think his policy positions will be better accepted. Eric? Most people say this is not a foreign policy election, that most Americans are concerned about what's happening here at home. So I'm going to violate that with a, starting with a foreign policy question. We all see the pictures on an almost daily basis out of Syria, out of Aleppo. It is a human catastrophe. What is your critique of American policy, past tense over the last few years, and what would be your prescription for what, if anything, we ought to be doing to uh, at least improve, if not alleviate, that catastrophe, Congressman? Yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, we had uh, two different presidents approach the Middle East in two different ways. Uh, George Bush had a more interventionist approach to the Middle East, and, and uh, Barack Obama had a more isolationist approach to the Middle East. And, and uh, while uh, Barack Obama couldn't do anything about the fact that we were in Iraq, he could have done something about the fact uh, or about making the transition smoother. And when he withdrew uh, so quickly from the Middle East, when Hillary Clinton didn't negotiate uh, with uh, the Iraq government uh, to, to protect our troops there, and we withdrew as a result of that, uh, we, uh, we found ourselves and we, and we left that area with, with a vacuum and, and ISIS uh, filled the vacuum. And uh, I think that uh, we have a responsibility to work with Arab states uh, to make sure that uh, we address the humanitarian needs. <clears throat> I think both uh, presidential candidates, both vice presidential candidates have talked about uh, having a, a no-fly zone in a protected area so that uh, there are protections in place for people on the ground and they don't have to leave uh, Syria. It is much better to keep people in place so that once the war is over, they have a place to go uh, and rebuild their own country. And, and I think that's really what the goal should be. Bob? It's not helpful when they're able to use a major party's political presidential nominee for propaganda reels. That does not help the situation. Uh, we need to make allies uh, of the Muslim community, both here and abroad, and help to win that over. We are not going to be able to defeat ISIS or any other organization for that matter with conventional military means. This is not a conventional war. This is a, literally a war of ideas. And we need to be able to present ourselves as an alternative instead of as a threatening force. Um, there was no choice about withdrawal from Iraq. That was a done deal. But those things get inflamed by American political rhetoric, which we need to tone back. 
Jim, let me off the next question. Um, I used to assume that most elected leaders wanted to actually, that, that believed that bipartisanship actually meant some productivity. Um, developments this year have proved that I am uh, completely naive on that idea. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that it is important to work across the aisle? Uh, and if so, how do you explain it to people in your own party? Kim, we're going to start with you. Do I believe it's important to work across the aisle? Absolutely. And, and what was the second part of the question? And how do you explain that to people in your own party? Yeah, I, I can tell you um, uh, every member, every Republican member and every Democrat member of Congress that I know understands the, the need to, to work across the aisle. Uh, the, the, one of the first things you try to do when you're offering a piece of legislation uh, is to go out and get uh, support from the other side of the aisle. Uh, and it's essential in, in the way that government is set up right now. You can't get a, a bill through the United States Senate unless you have 60 uh, votes, and you're going to get those votes with, with Democrats on board. Uh, you can't get a bill signed unless President Obama wants to sign that bill, and you can't override a veto. Uh, it is extremely rare. I think it's been done once in, in the last seven and a half years, so it's extremely rare to try to override a veto. So so, so absolutely critical. Uh, the, the explanation is simple. If you want to be effective, uh, you need to work uh, in a bipartisan way. Bob? I am a Democrat running in a heavily Republican district. Uh, <laughs> I cannot win this election without Republican votes. Uh, so it is imperative that I understand Republican issues. And these are not partisan issues. There are issues that transcend party. Uh, and so it's imperative as I understand that thought and that I'm able to, to act according to their needs, regardless of my own political ideology. The same with people in Congress. You can't, as Ken said, you can't get anything done unless you can work with people on the other side. Uh, entrenched, passive-aggressive government does not work. Eric? I'm going to follow up in a similar direction. Let me pose a hypothesis here. Ken will probably disagree with the hypothesis, but go with me for a sec which is that we're going to wake up here in five weeks after the election with a president-elect Hillary Clinton, if you believe current polls, with a Republican Congress, Republicans maintaining their majority in Congress, and with the Senate in doubt, but very close, you know, uh, somewhere close to 50-50, maybe 51, 52, 49, 48 on the other side. How does the next two years or four years with that dynamic look any different than the previous chapter in terms of relations between the White House and Congress and between and in terms of the ability to maybe get something done and break through the gridlock. Bob, we'll let you start this time out. Well, I, I'm doing my best to make sure that there are Democrats in the House. I understand. Um, not only for my own self-interest, but just for the interest of, of America, I believe. Um, given I go with my hypothesis. How are the next two years different? Regardless of who's in the White House or who's in the Congress, the American people are tired of nothing happening. We have serious issues that are not being addressed. Um, we're going to have to find a way to work together. They're going to have to start making allies. That's going to mean giving in on some points, some ideological points. We need to keep what is the goal in mind instead of the ideological specifics. Uh, we need to be able to work together. I, taught, I teach K-12 music, or I taught K-12 music for a long time. One of the first lessons that we teach kids in kindergarten is to play well with others. Congress would do well to learn that basic lesson. Congressman? 
you know, I think this president has been one of the more difficult uh, to work with, and, and uh, an individual that has uh, done a lot through executive order and uh, administrative regulations. Uh, I, uh, I hope that if Hillary Clinton uh, is elected, uh, I hope that she acts more like her husband. Uh, who was able to work with Newt Gingrich, who was able to work with a Republican Congress and uh, and get a lot of things done. We, we saw welfare reform uh, during his tenure. We saw a lot of, of bills where both sides came together and compromised. And uh, I believe that uh, Paul Ryan is probably more willing to uh, work with uh, a Democrat in the White House uh, than his predecessor. And, and I think that uh, in, in the House, at least, you're going to see every effort made uh, to reform Social Security reform Medicare. Uh, if we can't repeal Obamacare, at least take some of the burden off of, of small business in particular. Uh, so I, I think you're going to see a lot of issues where, uh, by, by virtue of the fact that uh, we just have to, uh, you're going to see some things getting done. May I reply to that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Barack Obama has issued executive orders, and I'm not one of these people that splitters between executive orders versus executive actions. It's all executive issue. It's all coming from the administrator. Um, because the Congress has taken this passive-aggressive posture where it simply does not act. Immigration is a key example. He passes two necessary immigration policies, only to have them overturned by a conservative court, only to have that upheld by a Senate which has not done its job to elect a ninth justice. When Congress is refusing to act and an, a national situation calls for action, then a leader has no choice. The balance of powers, the check and balance system, includes the authority of the executive. I realize Article One states the authority of Congress, but the president also has authority to act. Can you want to reply? Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, there's no doubt the president has the uh, authority to act. He does not have authority to legislate. And when you look at waters of the United States, when, when you look at the franchise rule, when you look at the overtime rule, when you look at all the rules that this president has enacted to further his agenda, um, I, I introduced a bill uh, to try to modify the Antiquities Act because this president has gone out and, uh, and has uh, really seized uh, uh, land and, and uh, determined that it should be a national monument or or uh, some other uh, designation uh, and really exceeded his power and, and, and to the detriment of America. We had ways in, in Colorado uh, of, of working through uh, designations like that where Republicans and Democrats, uh, the legislature, the governor would all come together and, and we would, uh, and, and you can remember the days when Senator Allard worked on the Sand Dunes National Monument. Uh, we would come together and, and take all interests into account and it would take a few years. This president, uh, by executive order, determined that Browns Canyon uh, should be a national monument. And now we're trying to figure out what the water rights are and what adjacent landowners have to do. And so uh, it really, uh, when, when a president exceeds his authority, it, it uh, creates a, a problem in the system that's going to take years to solve. Yeah, let's keep it moving. We want to thank ARP for this next question. What do you think is the greatest challenge with Social Security's long-term future? I think it's the last time we start with us. Uh, so we'll start with Bob in this one. Well, keeping it solvent is the biggest challenge, and that's the result of Congress using it as a piggy bank and not repaying the loans. Also, we need to raise the cap on Social Security. Uh, most people pay 6.2 percent of their income in Social Security. Um, I don't because I'm in para. That's why I said most people. I full disclosure here. I'm a teacher. Uh, which means that the first $118,500, you pay $7,437 in Social Security. If you make a million dollars, you pay $7,437 in Social Security. That is an unfair system. And it 
that's part of the problem. We need a taxation system, including Social Security, which is fair for all people, in which all people pay their fair share and don't go for 18 years without paying taxes. That's a, it, I realize that's different than Social Security, mm -hmm. but we need a system in which all people contribute and from which all people can receive benefits. Ken? I, I think Bob points out part of the solution. Uh, part of the solution is we've got to raise the cap. Uh, there, there may be a tax uh, increase in, in uh, a situation like that. Uh, what Bob fails to point out is that if you make a million dollars, you get the same amount as someone who makes $150,000 in Social Security when you retire, if you put in the same number of years. Uh, and, and so it's, it's important to recognize that there are uh, three or four points that have to be done. We can't tax our way out of the Social Security problem. We've got to raise the minimum age uh, for retirement. Uh, as, as life expectancy has increased, uh, we haven't raised that minimum age enough, and we've got to make sure that we uh, peg uh, the retirement age to uh, uh, life expectancy. There are other things that have to be done to soften the blow on taxpayers and on retirees. Mm -hmm. Eric? Let's turn to health care. It seems like a logical segue. Obviously, the Republican position has been to, for a number of years, to repeal Obamacare. Democratic position has been to defend Obamacare. Lately, there's been an unraveling of Obamacare with rate increases and major insurers pulling out of various markets. I guess my question to each of you is, if we can get off the talking points, what is the real solution to health care that, you know, is not a complete repeal, which is not likely to happen if there's a Democrat in the White House, but it's not also completely staying the course, which is probably an untenable course. Bob, we'll let you go first here. I don't believe that a medical crisis should cause a financial disaster for a family. That comes from personal experience in my own life and from seeing the lives of my students. I'm, I'm running in part because I'm sick of seeing jars on gas station countertops that say, you know, the X family, the Smith family needs help with their daughter's cancer treatment. That is not public health policy. Uh, I think Obamacare was a good start and was all they could do given the political climate of the time. The only way this works out in the long run is to have a single-payer system. It will take a long time to get there. You don't do that transition overnight. But that's the only place. We pay more for health care than any other country on Earth, and we have lower results. We are the only Western democracy that does not have a single-payer system. So to follow up, are you supporting Colorado Amendment 69? That is a state issue, and whatever the voters... I have endorsed six, the amendment. Uh, and it's going to be like any other thing. There's, going, there's some nuts and bolts that have to be addressed. I'm concerned about how it deals with uh, veterans, for example. So there are some specifics there that have issues. But that's ultimately up to the voters of Colorado. And Ken, I mean, short of repeal, which if there's a Democrat in the White House is not likely to happen, how do you deal with health care? We have to bring some uh, market principles into health care, and it's the only way to drive down uh, the costs uh, in health care. We have to sell insurance across state lines. We have to uh, uh, reform our, our tort uh, system. Uh, we have to uh, make sure when you buy auto insurance, you've got 20 different uh, insurers that you can choose from. Uh, when somebody buys health insurance, we've got to have that kind of competition in the marketplace. Uh, we've got to have competition between hospitals. We've got to have competition between doctors. Uh, and we don't have that. We also have uh, the government, uh, and I, I couldn't disagree more uh, with Bob on, on this issue. I think that a single-payer health system uh, would be the end of this country. We, we would be spending all of our money on health care and not on defense and not on uh, uh, roads and, and transportation and other important uh, uh, issues. Uh, but I, I think it's essential that, that we 
um, do everything we can to, to lower the cost through market competition. When Medicare is subsidized by private insurance, it drives the cost of private insurance up, and that's part of the reason we're seeing uh, the health care system. We need to get the federal government in line with the private sector and not dominating the private sector. General, let's get into an issue that is both a major issue in Colorado and, and a significant issue in your district, and that is uh, hydraulic fracturing. You have um, really the, the hotbed of, I mean, I'm going to even say in American uh, fracking ability really in your district. Um, but we've seen issues in Oklahoma, more earthquakes than they've ever had recorded. We've seen issues in Pennsylvania. But you also have a lot of agricultural in your district, which have conflicting issues on that. There's water use issues where farmers are not going to be able to afford water rights. But then you also have farmers who own the mineral rights who want to see fracking. What's the right balance in, in addressing fracking and water rights in your district? Ken, we'll start with you. The right balance is to make sure that, that government plays its appropriate role, and, and that is to assure public safety, uh, both uh, uh, safety in, uh, uh, in the environment uh, and uh, safety of, of the workers that are working in the oil and gas industry. Uh, the, uh, the, the government intervention that goes beyond that point, I think, goes too far. In Colorado, uh, we've had a lot of common-sense uh, regulations that have been put in place uh, to protect the workers and also uh, to protect the environment. And, and they were, at one point, if, if not still, uh, the toughest regulations in, in the country. But to deny a mineral right owner the ability to, to get mineral rights out of their property is a denial of private property rights. And that's a mistake. And, and if we're going to do that, we, we've got to compensate people. It's just, as, just like taking surface rights uh, with eminent domain. We've got to compensate people. And I don't think we have enough money to do that. So I'm in favor of fracking. I'm in favor of, of the regulations that are in place. And I, and I hope that the uh, industry and government continue to work well together. Bob, fracking and CD4. Fracking is a, it's an emotional issue that sometimes covers or pushes aside the bigger issue of climate change and just the general problem that we have with fossil fuels in general. There are people in Colorado's 4th District who, you know, farmers who have worked for years on that land who have a chance to cash out with mineral rights. I cannot in good conscience tell that man or that family that they can't do that. That's the economic reality of that. So while I... I'm concerned about climate change, uh, man-made climate change. I also recognize the economic reality of fracking. My biggest issue uh, with fracking is the lack of local control. We have zoning laws for every business, every type of business around. And yet oil and gas seems to want to be exempt from those zoning laws. They're putting oil wells behind elementary school playgrounds. That cannot be healthy. And if there is ever an accident there, what is going to happen? So we need government regulation to help people uh, to protect those people. Um, you should have the right, a community should have the right to decide whether it wants an oil well dropped down in the middle of its city park. Mm -hmm. uh, gentlemen, we're close to closing statements, so I'm going to ask Eric for a short question with some short answers, and we'll get to closing statements. Real, real quickly, we'll start with you, Bob. Caucuses or primaries? And if it's primaries, should they be open or closed? I, I like primaries. I feel like caucuses have too much peer pressure. Uh, it's an incredibly inefficient process, as we saw. You know, you get too many people coming in. You don't have room for all these folks. Uh, should caucuses, should primaries be open to unaffiliated voters or not? That is a tough call. I, my, my tendency is to say no. Okay. Um, Ken? 
I, I like the caucus system. Uh, it, the caucus system chooses the candidate for the primary, and so I, I like the system that we go through rather than having uh, a dozen candidates and someone can win with uh, 12, 13 percent of the vote. Uh, and I uh, believe that the uh, uh, primary uh, ballot should be a, a closed ballot. Well, let's get to our closing statements. We flipped the coin before the debate to see who would go first. Ken, you'll be going first. So we offer your one-minute closing statement. I want to thank both of you and, and Bob. I want to thank you for, for running for this office. I appreciate uh, uh, everyone who is willing to step forward and, and take grief and, uh, and do this, and, and especially uh, the amount of time you've spent studying the issues. Uh, I, I have to tell you, this, this election is, is a critical election in, in this country. Uh, we have a choice, and we have a choice between those who want to continue to grow our government and want to continue to grow regulations. Uh, we have $19 trillion of debt. We have $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities, and we can, can, cannot continue to go down this path. And I think it is absolutely essential that we come together uh, as a country and realize what the role of the federal government is and what the role of the state government is and local government. Uh, federal government should not be dictating education policy. Federal government should not be uh, uh, dictating transportation policy. A lot of the issues should be decided uh, within the state, uh, the state legislature, governor, uh, as well as local communities. Uh, I'm doing everything I can in Washington, D.C. to fight uh, to make sure that your tax dollar goes as far as possible and to make sure that the federal government stays within its boundaries. Thank you for listening tonight, and, and thank you very much for your vote and your support. Bob, your one-minute closing statement. Thank you also, and thank you, Congressman, for being here. I'm running because there is a sizable portion of CD4, I happen to believe the majority, whose needs are simply not being addressed. We have concerns about health care. We have concerns about economic development. We have concerns about infrastructure. And instead of addressing those needs, we do things like fight with the president over turf battles. We don't need that. We need a Congress that works with the president and with county commissioners and local governments and state representatives to get the job done. We have counties in the CD4 that have a one in three poverty rate. That is unacceptable in the America that I love. We have counties where people cannot get access to health care and they die because of it. That is unacceptable. We have a drug policy that makes it impossible for addicts to seek treatment without fear of prosecution. These are unacceptable in this country and we need to change that. And until we start addressing those problems, it's not going to get better. Uh, thank you very much. Bob, thank you. Well, that is all the time we have for our look at the race in Congressional District 4. I want to thank our candidates for joining us, Ken Buck and Bob C. I want to thank my fellow panelists, Eric Sonderman. If you have to find out more information about any of the election races this year or any of the ballot issues, please go to our website, cpt12.org election or cbsdenver.com and koanewsradio.com. Tune in next week as we feature a much-anticipated debate between the candidates running in the 6th Congressional District, Republican incumbent Mike Kaufman and his Democratic challenger Morgan Carroll. Also, I want to put a special plug in for the show right after this one at 9.30. Both sides of the story continues our tournament edition. Right after this debate, we'll be featuring George Washington High School taking on the issue of Colorado Care. Be sure to check it out. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching.